invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 this evening. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Have you ever heard the phrase, prayer changes things? Prayer changes things. Or does it? If God is sovereign over every speck of the universe, if God determines what numbers the dice will land on, as we learn about in Proverbs, actually speaking of lots there, if God determines when a sparrow dies and falls to the earth, if God turns the king's heart whichever way he wishes, just like the channels turn the river, and if God was even sovereign over the cruelest human act known to man, which was what? The crucifixion, right? The Christ died even though He did not deserve it. If God was sovereign over that, God must be sovereign over every single thing in this universe. And if He is, and do our prayers really do anything? Do our prayers really matter? Do they really change anything in something that's already planned out by God? As we go through this passage, I want you to see Paul's high view of prayer and how critical he sees it to be to the work of God continuing. Now, I hope to answer that question that whether or not prayer changes things when we get to the end, but you're going to have to bear with me as we go through the passage uh, before we actually address that question. Does prayer really do anything? In this passage, we are going to, to read about Paul's view of prayer and how much he sees that it is needed. So let me read Second Thessalonians 3, verses 1 through 5. This is the Word of God. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the Word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, and He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one, we have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Not only must we hold to sound teaching. Remember chapter 2, some were saying that the day of the Lord had already come. Not only must we hold to sound teaching and understand a little bit about the end times that the day of the Lord has not come until the Antichrist comes first and until Christ comes in judgment and so on. But in addition, we must pray. We must pray in the current battles in which we live. And so following this section that we're studying tonight, Paul will address a very difficult sin issue within the church. And... So Paul uses this short paragraph, verses 1-5, through five, to teach the believers and us 
that we must pray. That we must pray because God is the one who protects believers and causes them to persevere. We must pray because God is the one who protects believers and causes them to persevere. And so the means by which that happens, one of the means that God uses to protect us spiritually and to keep us going in the right direction is prayer. So we must pray. Notice Paul's confidence in God's power through prayer in verses 1 and 2. Paul's confidence in God's power through prayer. He believes that God works through the prayers of His people. Start to get an answer to that question, does our prayer actually do anything? Paul believes that God works through the powers of, uh, of prayer that comes through pre- people. Look at verse 1 again. Finally, brethren, pray for us. Paul begins to conclude this letter with these words that he often does in his letters, finally. Like in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, remember. Philippians 4, verse 8, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are honorable, whatever things are right, whatever things are pure, think on these things. And so essentially, he comes towards the end of the letter. You see that we still have a lot left. But he's saying, there are a few things that remain to be said. And here they are. Or as the NIV translates it, as for other matters. In addition to what I've talked about already, I've got some more things to talk to you about. And one of them is that I'm asking for you, Paul's saying, I'm asking for you to pray for us. Who, who is Paul referring to? Who is the us? Who are the us? Look back to chapter 1, verse 1. You see that Paul is sending this letter. He's the one writing it, but it's really being affirmed by these other two men, Paul and Silvanus or Silas and Timothy. So in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 1, he's saying, pray for us. Me, Silas, and Timothy. Now, do you think it's wise for Paul to ask for the prayers of others? I mean, think about it. What happens if they begin to see Paul as weak and vulnerable? I mean, Paul, are you really susceptible to the attack of Satan? You don't want people to think that. Won't they lose confidence in your leadership? And in your authority, if you ask them to pray for you? I mean, should Paul really have been asking Christians who were, let's be honest, less mature than he? Should he really be asking them to pray for him? Listen to Paul ask people to pray for him in several of his letters. Romans 15, 30-32 Now I urge you, brethren by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Ephesians 6, 18-19 With all prayer and petition... Pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf. 
that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Colossians 4, 2 and 3. Devote yourselves, Paul says to the believers there, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with the attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open uh, up to us a door for the Word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I also have been imprisoned. 1 Thessalonians 5.25 Brethren, pray for us. Philemon 1.22 At the same time also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I, I will be given to you. That is, I will come to you. Sometimes we as Christians, and perhaps especially pastors, don't ask people to pray for us because we don't want to come across as vulnerable or weak, Right? Maybe Paul's just putting on a front. But I don't think so. Paul is not so elite that he is exempt from needing people's prayer. And I think that he's been preaching long enough to know the temptation to preach for the sake of his own popularity, his own acclaim. And so he recognizes his need for God to protect him from himself. I think that he recognizes very clear that prayer actually accomplishes something. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. A couple books towards the front of your Bible. Chapter 1, verse 18. I think Paul really believes, and rightfully so, that prayer actually does something. Philippians 1, 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. And through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. What I want you to focus in on is verse 19 and 20. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and through the work of the Spirit. That I'm not going to be put to shame. I'm not going to bring reproach upon the name of Christ. That both in life and in death, Christ will be honored in me. See, Paul was confident that dependence on God through prayer actually brought about real results. Not perceived results. So sometimes what we think about when it comes to prayer is, well, God's just trying to change us. He's just trying to change our view. And I think that's what happens sometimes in prayer, by the way. But I think we, we, we are wrong to think that that's the only thing that happens in prayer. It actually doesn't change any results. Prayer doesn't change anything. I think Paul believes that the result of them praying will change what might otherwise have happened. Notice the content of this prayer in 2 Thessalonians 3. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1 reads, Finally, brethren, pray for us. So what does is, what is he ask them to pray for specifically? And there are two things, and they're both, both marked by the word that. Okay, so there are two prayer requests. See if you can find them with me. Verses 1 and 2. Finally, brethren, pray for us that 
The word of the Lord will be spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. So here are Paul's prayer requests for himself. Number one, the spread of the gospel. That the word of the Lord will spread rapidly. The the word spread rapidly in our translation actually literally come across from the Greek with the word, with one word, run. That the word of God would run. That the word of the Lord would run. So Paul's not asking for a, a one-time victory, but that it would continue to run and grow and spread. I think that's why the translation that the New American Standard has is a good one. That it would spread rapidly. Not that just it would accomplish a victory in one spot, but that it would accomplish a victory there and then move on and spread some more. You've seen this happen. Perhaps it, it happened in your family. Right? When God's Word spread to your heart and it changed you, perhaps it changed more people in your family too. It doesn't always happen that way. Perhaps you've seen this happen in a specific area or a specific church. Or you've seen this happen through missionaries. And it actually starts to spread to more and more people. And this is what Paul is praying for, that it, the Gospel would expand. Notice in the next line, this is still all connected to the spread of the gospel, that it would run or spread and spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. And be glorified. Paul's praying that the gospel would spread rapidly and that it would receive the proper glory or honor that it deserves. That it would be recognized for what it is that it would be recognized by being internalized by people, that it's worthy of giving our lives to. So do you see what kind of things we ought to be praying for? That the Gospel takes center stage. That people would see the great honor that the Gospel deserves. And that happens when people accept it and are changed by it. Paul says, this is exactly what happened with you. That's what he says at the end of verse 1. Just as you admired the God-given qualities of the Gospel and it changed you, this is what I want to see happen in more and more people as it spreads. So, Paul's prayer, number one, is that the Gospel would have success just as it did with the Thessalonians. And the second request begins in verse 2 after the word that. And it is very much connected to the first. So the first is the spread of the gospel, and the second is the removal of the obstacles that come in the way of the gospel. Notice verse 2. And that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. So here Paul prays that he would be delivered from evil men. Jesus taught us to pray that we should ask for God to deliver us from the evil one, right? Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from, some translations say evil, but I think the idea there is actually, as other translations have it in Matthew 6, deliver us from the evil one, from Satan himself. Paul's saying, remove from us the obstacles that get in the way of the Gospel. Now why would Paul need to the for God to deliver him from evil men. And I think we understand why. Because if any of us have given the Gospel, we've seen 
the opposition that there is to us spreading the gospel. And that is aggressive unbelievers, right? People who don't want to respond to the gospel and don't want to see other people respond to the gospel. Five years after writing this letter, he would say to the Romans in chapter 15, verse 31, that I may be rescued from the disobedient in Judea. He knew that one of Satan's uh, or some of Satan's pawns are unbelievers who are trying to to stop the spread of the gospel. And if they needed to kill Paul, that would be what they would do. Turn to Acts 18, because do you remember what happened immediately preceding the writing of this letter? Acts 18. Luke records it for us here. Between Acts 17 or between verses 17 and 18. Here in this chapter, Acts 18, Paul writes First and Second Thessalonians. So this event that takes place in verses 1 through 17 all happen prior to Paul writing First and Second Thessalonians. So let's find out what happens. After these things, verse 1 reads, he left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers, and he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greek. Jews and Greeks, so so far so good. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, He shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Now, what he means by that is not only to the Gentiles, but primarily to the Gentiles. He still would make it his pattern to go to the Jews as well. Verse 7, Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. This is good. And the Lord said to Paul in the night, By vision, don't be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in the city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Great. Verse 12. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names in your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. Notice the response here in verse 17. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. So, after verse 17, Paul writes 1 Thessalonians. He had come from Thessalonica to Corinth. He writes to them to encourage them in their faith. Three months later, he gets word back, apparently from the person who delivered that first letter, that they were starting to slip, doctrinally and morally. Some people were believing that the day of the Lord had come, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. 
some people were stopping work. They were they just quit their jobs and were were um, were getting all of their sustenance off of generous people within the church. Paul's saying both of those are problems. But but the point is is that that he writes this letter, the second letter to the Thessalonians. You can turn back there. Shortly after Sosthenes is beaten and Paul's brought before the judgment seat, and so here's what he prays for: pray that the spread of the gospel would go out and that it would be glorified, that it would be honored as it deserves. But also pray that I and we would be protected from evil men, because not all have faith. So you see now why he might ask for a specific prayer in this way? He's experienced this firsthand that evil men are trying to stop the progress of the gospel. There are many people who are openly and actively opposed to the message of the gospel. And the reason for that is at the end of verse 2, not all have faith. The reason for their hostility is their lack of faith in Christ. That's the idea. Not just they don't have any generic religious faith. It's they don't have faith in the true and living one. And we could say conversely, the reason that we have a lack of hostility towards the gospel is because of the faith that we have received from God. The faith that has been granted to us. So Paul prays for himself and his associates, his colleagues, that the spread of the gospel would go out and that it would be protected from evil men. So there's confidence in God's power through prayer in verses 1 and 2. And then verses 3 and three through 5, Paul's confidence in God's sustaining grace. Paul's confidence in God's sustaining grace. Notice verse 3, the foundation of God's sustaining grace. But the Lord is faithful. Now, if we were to look at a Greek Greek manuscript of the New Testament, the very first word of verse 3 is faithful. So, what what it would say is at the end of verse 2, not all have faith, and then the very next word in the Greek language, faithful is, is the Lord. You see that stark contrast that Paul is trying to make? Even though we will have people who oppose us, real people in flesh and blood, because of their lack of faith, the faithful one is the one who sustains you. He's the one who's called you. And He will ultimately triumph in your life and in the lives of those around you. Folks, are you confident in the Lord's faithfulness? The evidence of the Lord's faithfulness is seen in the strength and protection that He gives believers. Look at the next line of verse 3. And He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Because Christ is faithful, Paul is confident that they, he's confident that these believers will persevere until the end. That is, that, that Christ will give them the strength that they need to stand up against evil men and to do what is right. So, Christ's faithfulness leads to their strength and it leads to, the next line tells us, their protection. But the Lord is faithful, the Lord Christ is faithful, and He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. 
Brothers and sisters in Christ, the reason that we have confidence that we will have enough strength to endure all the way till the end and to be protected from the evil one pulling us away is because of that very first line of verse 3. The Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. There will be all sorts of enemies that try to oppose us and to keep us from the confidence that we have in Christ. But the Lord is faithful. And notice how this is expressed in verse 4, the expression of God's sustaining grace. It's obedience, isn't it? We have confidence in the Lord, verse 4, concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. Notice what he does not say. He doesn't say, we have confidence in you and in your abilities to work hard to do what is right. No, what does he say? We have confidence in whom? In the Lord. That you will continue to do what is right. He doesn't have confidence in them. He has confidence in the Lord. Because they have been united with Christ in His death and resurrection by faith. And because they will continue to be united with Christ all the way until the end. And that guarantees that they will be able to make progress against the abiding evil that resides within our human nature and within the world around us. The expression of God's sustaining grace is our obedience, which comes from confidence that we have in the Lord, that He will do it. He is the one who called us, and He will bring it to pass. Even though Christ's faithfulness guarantees our continual obedience, that does not exempt Paul and that should not exempt us from praying for God's help. Look at verse 5. Paul finishes with a prayer. So he starts out in verses 1 and 2 asking for them to pray for him. Then he talks about his confidence in God's sustaining grace in their lives. And then he prays for that sustaining grace in verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Do you remember the two things Paul asked for prayer for himself? That the word of the Lord would spread rapidly and be glorified, and that he would be protected from evil men. Now he prays something that is also very much spiritual for the Thessalonians, and that is that they would, number one, understand more fully God's love. Verse, first part of verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts into... And I would suggest to you the idea there is God's love for you. Okay, because sometimes we read the love of God. Well, does that mean that He would direct you, direct me into more love for God, or is it referring to God's love for me? And I would suggest it as the second option there. That Christ would would transform them, that He would continue to refine them so that they would fully, more fully understand God's love for them. Do you know what happens when we start to understand more fully God's love for us? God's unconditional love, the love that we don't deserve, that's unearned, it causes us to grow in our relationship with God. It causes us to be more humble before God because we don't deserve it. It, it causes us to act out in service towards God. And so this is what Paul prays for them, that they would more fully understand God's love. And then secondly, that they, would have a more, that they would have a clearer, eternal perspective. 
that they would have a clearer, eternal perspective like Christ. Look at, look at verse 5 again. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God, that you would understand God's love more, and into the steadfastness of Christ, that you would follow Christ's example. Now, how is Christ steadfast? How, was he, how did He express endurance? Well, Hebrews 12, 2 and 3, I think, explain that for us. Jesus, who for the joy set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And it goes on to say in verse 3, For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You know why Christ was able to endure the cross? You know why Christ was able to endure the shame? Because He had His eyes fixed on eternal things. His eyes weren't fixed on His immediate circumstances and the great trials that He faced. No, like saints of old, He had His eyes fixed on the promises of God and on eternal things. And here's what Paul is praying for the Thessalonians. That you, that God may direct your hearts to the steadfastness of Christ, that you would understand how Christ is endured by looking to eternal things and that you would do the same. And so in this passage, we have two main points. Number one, confidence in God's power through prayer, verses 1 and 2. And number two, confidence in God's sustaining grace. And these two main points are not disconnected. The confidence that Paul has in seeing the gospel advanced, that is, in seeing God's sustaining grace, the confidence he has in his sustaining grace, that's point two, is because of, of Paul's confidence in the power of prayer. He knows that people are praying for him, and he's praying for them. The reason he can be confident in God's sustaining grace that God will keep them to the end, that the Lord is faithful, that he has confidence in the Lord, is because people are praying. So did Paul believe that the prayers of believers changed anything? Let me recommend to you a book by Dr. Don Carson, the song we sang this morning, To the Praise of His Glorious Grace. was written by Dr. Carson. He's a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary in Illinois. And the book is called, I meant to have it for you, I have a copy out in the rack and I also have another copy at home. It's called A Call to Spiritual Reformation, Priorities from Paul and His Prayers. And I would, I would encourage you to read through this book. To actually, probably study this book. It's, it's a little bit of a heavier read. It's not like you just sit down and not, not have a whole lot of uh, mind power and just kind of work through it real quick and get the idea. It's not an easy read, but it will take some time. But if you think through it carefully it will be rich and sweet honey for your soul because what he does is he takes you through the prayers of Paul and he helps you to see what kind of things you ought to be praying for, what, what I ought to be praying for. And I have, again, two copies. If you'd like to borrow one, let me know. I'd be happy to lend it out to you. Much of the following discussion is, is drawn from this book. When we think about our prayers and whether they affect change, we need to keep two things in mind. Okay, so if you miss 
Anything else tonight? Try to get this. Number one, we need to keep two things in mind when we want to think about our prayers, whether they affect change. Number one, God is absolutely sovereign. And number two, human beings are responsible. Okay? God is sovereign. We are responsible. Now, we could expand both of those and say this. God is absolutely sovereign over all things, and yet it never diminishes our responsibility. When we look at the Scriptures, we do understand that God is sovereign over everything. And He knows exactly how the dice are going to be rolled because He's determined it. He knows all the evil acts of men because He's planned it. But that never diminishes or reduces our responsibility, does it? Often, on the heels of God's sovereignty, we find commands for us to do something. And the second point can also be expanded. We are responsible. Humans are responsible. But our responsibility never diminishes God's sovereignty. As if God's simply reacting to our free choice. As if we're making God respond. As if as if God's having to, you know, think a couple moves ahead of us so that he doesn't get surprised. And and we step into danger, Carson argues, when we emphasize one of those over the other. If we emphasize too much that God is sovereign, you know what's going to happen? We're not going to pray very much. We're going to think, well, God's the God of all. It can actually turn into a passive or a fatalistic mentality. That's wrong. Okay, that's not what the Bible calls us to. Or we can emphasize this one too much. We can say we are responsible, and so we minimize God's sovereignty. And both of those are dangerous. And yet what we see in the Scriptures is that both of those are often coupled. They come together in Scripture, and they're not explained how they work together. Genesis 15, 19 and 20. Remember, after Jacob died, Joseph's brothers are really concerned now because now that Dad's gone, Joseph might really lick us. right? He might really pay us back now. Remember Joseph's response there in Genesis 50, 19? Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. Here's the human responsibility side. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done the saving of many lives. See, Joseph didn't overemphasize one or the other, did he? He didn't say, you know, God wanted to give me first-class treatment here, but you messed it all up. Or you had a terrible plan, and yet God came in and saved the day. No, Joseph combines the idea. You meant it for harm, but God meant it for good. Our responsibility, God's sovereignty. After being released from prison, Peter and John say to the religious leaders in Acts 4, For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand, that's this one over here, our responsibility, and your purpose predestined to occur. That is, They did what they want. Herod and Pontius Pilate did what they want. But it was actually God who actually predetermined, right, what was going to happen with Christ. Was God surprised that Christ would die on the cross? Was God out of control in some way? Wasn't quite sure what was going to happen there? And he had to hurry up and 
react? How can I fix this situation? No, God predestined that Christ would die. We know that because it's it's um, prophesied in the Old Testament. And yet the text tells us that Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and Jews gathered together against Jesus to kill Him. And so here we have evil men doing exactly what they want to do, yet God had already determined that it would happen. So these things are not opposed to each other. They actually work together somehow. We just don't understand how. So what does this mean for our prayer? What does this mean for our prayers to God? It means that God has already determined the result of our prayer. But this understanding by us should in no way discourage us from our responsibility, which is to do what? It's to pray. Because God uses means to accomplish what He has planned. Do you remember when Moses came down from Mount Sinai? And he saw that the people had crafted an idol and were worshiping it. And remember God's response? God's ready to wipe them off the face of the earth. You are done. You remember how Moses came to God and prayed to Him? And he prayed to Him on behalf of his own fame. God, what will the Egyptians say? What will the Gentiles say when they see that you've turned against your people? For the sake of your name, God, spare your people. I know they've done what is wrong. We've sinned before you. But God, for your own sake, for your own name, for your own glory, spare them. And the text says that God relented. God relented. So is this proof that God changes His mind, that He never really did have a plan? Well, that would be short-sighted, right? Because we would be overemphasizing uh, the human responsibility side of it. Instead, we learn that God stays true to His promise. He said He was going to deliver them. He said He was going to restore and keep their race and lead them to the promised land. And God would do that. But you know how He did it? In this specific case, the prayer of His man, the prayer of His people. And so in a limited sense, does prayer change things? Does prayer change things? When Moses prayed to God, did that change anything? In a limited sense, we have to say yes. But not an absolute way that ties God's hand as if He never planned anything. You see, God uses the prayers of His people to accomplish what He had already planned. So let me leave you with three points of application with regard to our prayer. Number one, be like Moses. Fill the content of your prayer with Scripture. Fill the content of your prayer with Scripture. That is, with the promises that God has already given to us. Now, when I say that, I don't mean to just you know quote the Lord's Prayer as if it's rubbing a genie bottle and we're going to get our three wishes if we just say it the right way. But what I am saying is that the best prayers in Scripture appealed to God's character and God's promises. And we would do well to find out what it is that people in the Scriptures pray about. What specifically is the content of their prayer? So pray according to what God has already revealed to him, to us about Himself. 
And the reason this is so important is because it causes us to submit to God's definition of what is best. And the only way we'll do this is if we look at the commands of how we ought to pray and the examples of Scripture. And that's why I'd encourage you to read through this book. It would do you well to look through these prayers of Paul. So fill the content of your prayers with Scripture. What better way to pray for God's purposes to be done than to align them with what He's already revealed about His purposes? Sometimes we think, well, I don't want to pray for God to do something that He's already told me He's going to do. But do you know, do you remember John in the end of Revelation? Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. John, come on. Jesus is only coming at one time. You praying for Him is not going to change anything, and yet He prays, Come quickly, Lord. See, He sees the, the, the inconsistencies on the earth, and He prays that Christ would come. In fact, we find out that there are people, there are tribulation martyrs at the, at the foot of the altar in heaven who are also praying that it would all end. Christ would come in judgment. And apparently, those prayers will actually work. Because Christ will come. Obviously, He will come at an appointed time, but it's through the means that God has provided, and that is through prayer. Number two, I would encourage you to pray for me. Pray that God would strengthen my understanding of His love for me. Pray that I would be protected from the evil one and his allies. That is, the satanic forces and the evil men who want to stop the progress of the gospel in my life. Would you pray for me? And number three, pray for one another. I may sound like a broken record here, but we have an obligation to pray for brothers and sisters in our church. Not generically, you know, pray for Ambassador Baptist Church. That would be better than not praying at all. But pray specifically so that when God responds to those requests, you can praise Him specifically. And just a very practical way to do that is just pray through the church directory. Very clearly spells out who are the members of this church. Who are the people that we have an obligation specifically to pray for? That doesn't mean that's all we should pray for. We certainly should be praying for people in addition to that. But that is our main obligation, is to pray for one another in this church. In order for us to do this, this assumes that we are not harboring resentment for people in our church. I mean, how can we adequately carry the load, the burden of other believers in our church while we're withholding forgiveness? For them, uh, from them because of something they did to us. How can we pray for them? How can we say, come here, let me help you with your load? And one of the ways we do that, by the way, is through praying for them. That's what Galatians 6.2 says, is bear the burdens of one another. One of your responsibilities is to bear the burdens of other believers within this church and specifically... One of the great ways that we can do that, one practical way to do it is by praying for them. you think God cares? Do you think God wants to respond to His people's request? 1 Peter 5.7 says, Cast all your cares on Him because He cares for you. Does He? 
Does he care for you? Does he care for the requests that you have? Does he want to respond in a way that is in keeping with his character and will and also that is a response to your specific request? Prayer does change things. Let's pray. Father, we never want to minimize Your sovereignty over all things. Every speck of dust is controlled by Your sovereign power. No act of of any human or any created being could ever be done outside of Your control because otherwise You would be out of control and You would be susceptible to being defeated. We know that You are the God of all the universe, not of just the good. Now, we understand that You don't stand behind evil in the same way that You stand behind good. With good, You take all the credit for it. All the good that is done by any of us can only be attributed to You, but not so with evil. All the evil that is done, You stand behind it in that You planned it somehow but you don't take ultimate responsibility for it. Pharaoh did exactly what he wanted to do. Herod and Pontius Pilate and Gentiles and Jews did exactly what they wanted to do. So we don't want to minimize your sovereignty, but that can be the tendency in a church like ours who wants to highlight your sovereignty. And so we pray that you'd help us to see the other side but not swing the pendulum too far so as to think that you're not in control of anything. And so would you give us the grace to understand as best we can the relationship between your sovereignty and our responsibility. At the very least, that we would simply obey even though we don't fully understand. Lord, we have seen you work through the prayers of your people. We've seen it in Scripture. We've seen it in our own lives. And we want to see You continue to work. So would You do that? Would You increase our faith as we pray to You even tonight? Would You respond to Your people who love You and want to see Your name glorified? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.